The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. The Lord replied, If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say, prepare supper for me, put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later, you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. The Gospel of the Lord. Amen. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. We are a measured people. We count everything. We count money, we count followers, we count likes. We count grades, we count votes, and we keep count because in our hyper-competitive society, keeping score allows us to determine who the winners are and who the losers are. Thank you. In our first reading today from Lamentations, it almost reads like a scorecard listing all of the losses that the Hebrews have suffered in the wake of the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the city by Babylon. It's poetic and it's devastating, almost like your favorite sad country music or your favorite breakup song. <laughs> Counting our anguish like the poet does in Lamentations today, that's hard work. And it's work that I think we'd often rather ignore. But it's important that we do work like the poet here in Lamentations. Because the alternative is burying our anguish, pretending that We've never suffered a loss in the first place. We paint over the past and obscure all the bad parts. And it's a defense mechanism against weakness and vulnerability in a world that values strength and winning. But defenses lead to isolation. And the way that we as people of faith can combat isolation is to witness together like the poet in Lamentations does, to the, to the breadth and to the depth of our collective trauma. Now anyone who knows me well knows that I am a fan of sad things. I love sad movies, I love sad music, and I just generally, I think, love sad art in general. <laughs> and I think it's because there's something so honest about it. It always feels to me more real than any rom-com or fantasy escapist, fantasy escapist narrative that ever could. And being a fan of sad things, I think, has led me sometimes to be a bit melancholy. There's been times in my preaching when people have come up to me afterwards and said, why can't you preach about happy things? <laughs> <laughs> and I usually try and smile and laugh comments like that off, but what I think comments like that reveal about my preaching is that I sometimes am trying to witness to our collective trauma in my sermons. But the truth is that we are inundated with tragic, heartbreaking news all the time. 
especially with social media and a 24-hour news cycle that preys on our fears and our emotions and our insecurities. So when we come to church, it makes sense that we would want to hear some good news. And trust me, that is my goal every time I get up here to preach. I might not always hit the mark, but preaching good news is my desired bullseye whenever I'm in this pulpit. And especially in light of how broken our world is, it is my hope that every time I preach, we can all come away with a deeper awareness of where God's grace is in our lives. Amen. But I think in order to know the depth of that grace, we need to also take seriously how far and deep that grace has to go in order to reach to the bottoms of the cracks of our broken world. The anguish of poets like the one in Lamentations, who has just lost everything and is now in exile and captivity to the Babylonians, that reading might seem like a downer to some of us, but to those of us who are also in that rock-bottom place like the Hebrews, that reading is a reminder to us that we are not alone. And beyond all of that, God gets into that rock-bottom place with us as well. Amen. And I know that second truth there that I just talked about, God getting into that rock-bottom place with us, that's a truth that God has, and not, has not and will not abandon us when we hit that rock-bottom place. But to believe that, to really trust that, takes faith. And you might be saying to yourself, well, I don't even know if I have faith, or at least not enough to take that one. And let me say to you today that you're not alone in that sentiment either, because the disciples in today's gospel are in a similar place. And I think it's important to name that when we read today's gospel, it's actually a gospel that begins in mid-story. Jesus, right before this, has just commissioned the disciples to continually forgive repentant sinners. And it's to this command, then, that we pick up in today's gospel with the disciples begging Jesus to increase our faith. And I've always found that sentiment, that increase our faith sentiment, to be a bit odd. Increase our faith makes it seem like faith is something that we can count, like we would count dollars or points. But I think that we today need to reject this understanding of faith. Because faith is not something that can be stored up or earned or counted. It's a gift from God that is at work within us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And this next quote, it's going to be a bit long, but stay with me because it was really important. I didn't know which parts of it to cut out. So um, try, try to pay attention through the whole thing. I know it's long. Theologian James Allison, he puts it this way. For faith is the stable disposition produced in you by God's truthfully persuading you through the presence of Jesus' life and death that you are loved by God just as you are. Through this persuasion, over time, you are able habitually to relax into that being known by God as you are with love, and to live without fear of death. Because of this, the ordinary emotional correlate of faith is relaxation. You are not having to strain belief towards something unknown. Rather, the effort, the strain, and the hard work is on the part of the one who is trying to persuade you to relax into being known as you are. Despite all the obstacles of shame, ignorance, and the inability to accept yourself as lovable, that one is inducing you in the way that it's, 
I'm sorry, that one is inducing you in the stable disposition of being persuaded by that one. Which persuasion, or faith as the Greek word is the same, is itself God's gift in you. This gift is in you as a certain publicly detectable way of being present in the world which has incidence in all of your relationships. So this quote, it, it really recaps that faith is something that produces within us an acceptance of ourselves as we are. And then that produces a correlating relaxation within us. And this isn't a quantifiable thing, but as we move through the world in faith, it does have real impacts on our relationships with one another, on our relationship with this earth, and on our relationship with ourselves. We can relax, and instead of feeling inadequate or thinking, if I only had enough faith, we can trust that all the faith that we need is already ours. And it's already ours through Christ who has bestowed that gift of faith on us. Amen. When I was still competing in wrestling in my younger days, I remember this shirt that I would wear to practice sometimes, and on the back it said, all you need is all you got. And I know the English on that is pretty poor, but um, in the context of wrestling, you know, this phrase on the back of my shirt, it was intended to inspire more effort, that there was always more within if we were just willing to dig deep enough. And in that way, I think the shirt supported this kind of scorekeeping, endlessly competitive, hustle-till-you-die work ethic that our world holds up as the ideal. But in the context of faith, I wonder if the phrase on that shirt could be understood a bit differently. All you need is all you got. And when it comes to faith, that means that we already have all of the faith we need. And that, in that way, maybe that phrase can help us relax as we trust the faith that God has given us is a gift and not some personal improvement project. Amen. Blessed by the best. That's right, Mike. <laughs> Building and growing or increasing our faith is starting from the wrong place. Thinking that way is starting from the wrong place. Because there is no striving and there is no work or no strain that we can do in order to experience this stable, relaxed disposition that the gift of faith offers to us. And in the same way, our liturgy together as we worship is an expression of this graceful gift of faith. All of the faith you need is all of the faith you already got. And as we gather around this table, where there is room enough for everyone, and where we affirm that in the bread and wine that that is the body and blood of Christ, we are also then affirming that all we need is here. There is no striving, no straining, no work that needs to be done in order to earn your place at this meal. All it takes for you is to take your place at the table that is already prepared for you, and with open and outstretched hands, receive the gift of God's presence. Filled with that presence, we are then persuaded once again that we are loved by God just as we are, made one in the body of Christ through this meal. We are connected, not isolated. Amen. And it's together in faith that we witness to the collective trauma of this world, and then we accompany one another through it. Not keeping score or striving to 
one-up or outdo one another, but simply resting and relaxing in faith, the faith that we are all loved just as we are, and there's nothing we need to do, and there's nothing we even can do to increase that love.